Hello, and welcome to Educators to Educators podcast. I'm Carrie Conover, and thank you so much for joining us for episode 21, Football, Farming, and Teaching, Controlling the Controllable. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dan Jones, a successful entrepreneur and coach who has worked with professional athletes and top executives to develop their strengths and shift into the correct mindset to achieve their goals. This episode is full of great conversation and I think you'll find Dan just as fascinating as I did. During this conversation, we will focus on three areas as we always do here on E2E. So we'll focus on controlling the controllable, dealing with energy vampires, oh man, and focusing on what is going well. All three of these topics tie directly to the profession of teaching, and Dan does an incredible job discussing how we can eliminate the anxiety of our day-to-day jobs as educators. Before we get started with Dan, I have a favor to ask you. I absolutely love bringing you interesting guests and relevant content every week, but frankly, I need your support to keep this podcast going. Here's a couple really easy and simple ways that you can help me. Number one, share this podcast with a friend or a group of friends. It's really easy. Just hit that share button, text it or email it on over to your education friends and ask them to check it out. The second way is to subscribe to the podcast so that you get updates every week that a new episode is in the store. And finally, this one's a little more effort, but man, does it help. Giving Educators to Educators a five-star review in the podcast store has huge impact. If you have a little extra energy, a review is super helpful. Right now, I have a five out of five rating, and I would love to keep it there. It makes me super happy, and it also motivates me to keep making more and more great content for all of you. Speaking of reviews, I wanted to give a special shout out to Derek Larson, for the following review he left in the Apple Podcast Store. Derek says, Carrie does an excellent job in finding inspiring educators for this show. I really appreciate the choices she's made thus far and am excited to see who she brings on air for future episodes. The format is great with three main questions that allow for some additional side questions, but a very focused show. I recommend it to educators all the time. Well, thanks so much, Derek. I loved reading that. And uh, I know I have a lineup of really amazing guests for you this school year. So thanks, Derek, for taking the time to write that about educators to educators. One more thing before Dan talks farming, football, and teaching. Uh, Do you all remember Teacher Summer Reboot? So it was a self-paced course that Heather Campbell and Jill Schaefer and I launched last spring. It was a total success and we're working on edits and changes to make it even better to launch again this spring. But before we do that, I'm working on a second course that's going to be launching this fall. I'm working with Dr. Gwen Cram from episode eight, Trust in Schools. She was remarkable. So I'm working with her to create a course for teachers to help you navigate and build strong parent relationships. So in this course, you'll work through a process to build strong and healthy relationships with your students' parents. You'll eliminate stress. You'll have an amazing communication plan put together. And we also talk about creating healthy boundaries with parents. This course will be an online course, but we also are planning to deliver it as professional development sessions for schools and school districts. So stay tuned. We're working on wrapping that course up right now and that'll be launched for all of you in October. So without further ado, let's get started with Dan Jones. I have to tell you a little story to get us started for this episode. So today was the first day of school for my second grade daughter and fifth grade son. There's a lot of anticipation in our house. What an exciting day. But our morning, it just honestly did not go very well. I think everyone in my family woke up on the wrong side of the bed, including me. So we had a rough first day of school. And frankly, I snapped two quick pictures by the front door that are horrible. And then we 
got in the car super fast, ran over to school. And there we are, my husband, two kids and I walking very quickly to the front doors of school because we're about to be late. And coming towards us is like the whole neighborhood who have already dropped off their kids and are, you know, walking back to their houses. So that was a little embarrassing. That put me in even uh, a worse mood. And then um, I said goodbye to my husband, got in the car, and I had planned to go work out. So I headed over to Orange Theory. I'm working out. I haven't been there for a while. It is awful. I hate every second of it. I'm just not into it. And I ended up leaving the workout 20 minutes early, which I never do. I get in the car and I'm like crying on the way home from working out. And I started thinking about my day and I really truly believe that having a bad morning shouldn't mean that you have a bad day. Like you have to be able to turn yourself around as an adult and get into a different mindset. And I started thinking about what I had in front of me today. And I started thinking about the fact that I get to interview Dan Jones on my podcast. Now I met Dan through a mutual friend and Dan, we're going to talk a little bit about who he is in a few minutes, but he is a licensed coach. He works with professional athletes. I mean, he is way too cool to be talking to me, but I started thinking about the first conversation I had with Dan. And one of the things that Dan really taught me is that that you have to separate who you are from different performances in your life. And he was talking about this through the lens of professional athletes. And so I started to think about that really interesting tip that Dan taught me. And if I lived true to that kind of philosophy, just because I had a bad morning doesn't mean I'm a bad mom. And just because my kids were cranky and not really being the kids I wanted them to be on the first day of school doesn't mean they're bad kids. And so I really am excited to have Dan on the podcast today because of our one conversation, he's had major influence on me personally, and I think professionally. And I think he can really translate, translate a lot of what he does with um, athletes and companies across the country to help us as educators um, be kinder to ourselves and be at our best. So Dan Jones, welcome to Educators to Educators podcast. Hey, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, Dan, thank you for already changing my life and my attitude towards <laughs> kind of these bad mornings. Yeah, I mean, happy to do that for sure. Dan, you are like really super cool and I'm so honored you're here. But just to let our audience know, so Dan is a licensed coach with the Fearless Mind. He is a tech entrepreneur and he's going to tell us about some pretty exciting things that have happened to him in the last couple of days. And he's getting ready to start his uh, next consulting and coaching business in the next few weeks. So we hit you kind of at a prime time here, Dan. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting time. So I, um, yesterday I actually sold my tech company. So I'm really excited about that. And thank you. And um, yeah, so I've been working with the fearless mind um, for about a year and a half. And so Kind of what that is, is we work with pro athletes and businesses on the mental side of performance. And so I got involved with that um, about a year and a half ago. And it's, it's a really cool company. In the 2014 Olympics, um, 60, 60% of America's gold medalists were people the fearless mind worked with. Whoa, that's amazing. And um, I think right now there's 15 Red Bull athletes that are ranked number one in the world for different sports like uh, surfing, different things that have worked with the fearless mind. So it's been an awesome experience. And then in terms of the business people I've coached there, it's usually entrepreneurs that are doing between $1 million to $100 million in revenue. Wow. And do you find, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I'm assuming a lot of that coaching that you do in both spaces just translates not only between different sports, um, but then into the business world? Yeah, because uh, anytime you're in a situation where there's a lot of pressure, um, like athletes are under extreme amounts of duress, right? You know, you don't, you don't score enough points. You know, they're paying you millions of dollars. Or in business people, especially executives, it's a similar thing. You know, if you don't do well, there's people that have, that have invested in your company. Um, you have employees, you know, who depend on your performance. So if you don't do well, people lose their job. Yeah. And... So there's a lot of pressure in those situations. And even with, you know, we'll talk about this in a bit, but with teaching, there's a lot of pressure. I think that oh. teachers put on themselves and 
parents, you know, parents, yeah. they can put so much pressure on teachers and as well as the principal and administration. So it's very similar because at the core, it's the mindset, you know, and how you deal with that pressure to still perform at your highest level. And that's really, honestly, you're someone like you is one of my favorite guests on Educators to Educators because, you know, I was in the teaching world for 10 years. Then I was in the startup and business world for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I talk to someone like you that isn't an educator yourself, but you start talking about this knowledge that you have and, you know, that you've studied this and worked in this field for so long, as soon as you and I started talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, that relates to teaching. Oh my gosh, that relates to teaching, whether you were talking about athletes or business. So um, it's going to be fun throughout this conversation to kind of draw those, you know, bridges over into the education field. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to do it. So talk, It's going to be fun. Talk to me. So you just sold your company, which... I mean, it's just I mean, every entrepreneur's dream. Talk to me about what's next for you. What are you going to do next? Yeah, so um, the next thing is I'm actually starting a, um, you know, executive coaching and consulting company um, in a few weeks with a couple guys I know and a guy named Roger Connors. And Roger Connors has written four New York Times bestsellers. He consulted 46 of the Fortune 50 companies, you know, so the 50 biggest companies in the world. And uh, Roger also, if you've heard of the term like victim mindset. Yes. So he's the one that came up with that in the early 90s. Wow. So he's kind of a, he's been a thought leader for a long time. And, you know, he, but the cool thing is he's actually gotten results with huge corporations. You know, Domino's Pizza, I don't think, you know, there's a while they weren't very good. Yeah. <laughs> We're just being honest with ourselves. Yeah. But he's the guy that they hired to t- turn them around. So um, he sold a company a couple years ago and for who knows how much. And anyways, he recruited me uh, to help him start his next venture. Dan's pretty cool, right? Well, before we hear about Dan's family and all of his advice for us, I wanted to remind you that you should be following me on Instagram, educators to educators, pretty easy to find. The reason I want you to be following me is that's where I give updates on all the cool stuff we're working on at Educators to Educators. And just this week, I gave away a really fun teacher giveaway where a teacher won a pair of Earth Brand shoes, my favorite necklace, some really luxury bath bombs, just some fun self-care stuff. So make sure you're following me on Instagram so you can be aware of all the cool things going on around here. Now, let's hear about Dan's family. So my mom, she actually taught um, in the public schools for 35 years. And then she also uh, taught at the University of Utah in their education program, teaching teachers how to teach. So she was doing that uh, before I was born. And then when she had all of us kids, you know, I took a lot of time. I'm kind of, I was kind of an obnoxious child. So then she didn't teach at the university anymore. She taught at the local uh, nearby elementary school. And she just retired recently. And so that was, you know, I learned a lot of things from her. And then my dad, actually, he's a professor at Weber State University right now. And then he's also a a piano teacher. So my dad's taught 90,000 private piano lessons. So, I mean, a few. He's taught a few. I mean, did you take piano lessons from your dad? So, Carrie, don't judge me, but I'm the only child in my family that's awful at piano because I was so stubborn they let me quit. (laughs) <laughs> after a few years but everyone else is like incredible and then there's me and I'm like eh. you know so multiple intelligences everyone has different intelligences Dan so yours just wasn't maybe in the musical category yeah not all of us can be Beyonce <laughs> exactly um so that's very cool so let's talk let's talk about controlling the controllable which frankly uh we had a conversation a few weeks ago Um, And this part of our conversation has probably had the biggest impact for me, but maybe start us off and talk about how you've talked to athletes about this, because I thought this was really fascinating. Yeah, um, so just to kind of step back, um, because really the purpose of like um, controlling the controllable is to help remove anxiety, stress, and pressure, which people feel all the time. And... So anxiety is caused when you're focusing on 
something that you do not have direct control of or you do not think you can influence the outcome of. And so constantly throughout our days, we'll be focusing on things like we don't have control of, or most of us do. So to use an athlete's example, can an athlete really control the outcome of a game? You'd think LeBron James, the best basketball player in the world, could control the outcome of any basketball game. It turns out he can't, right? You know, because he's playing the Golden State Warriors and they've got, you know, four all-stars and so they don't win. And so if he's constantly focused on the outcome, that's not something he has direct control of. But what he can control is his actions, his attitude, and his thoughts. And so with athletes and business executives, that's the thing that we're honing in on. It's like, okay, what are the actions you can control? What are the thoughts you can control? What's your attitude that you can control? Right? Your teammates, you can influence them, but you can't really control, you can't control them. And I think sometimes there's this fine line that I think, you know, to jump into teaching a little bit, how it correlates is sometimes as teachers, you probably feel like I should be in control of the students. You can influence the students, right? But you can't 100% control them. It's back to school season right now. And so a lot of the you know, teacher Facebook pages and thing, different Instagram posts I'm seeing from teachers, hearing from teachers is that they're saying like, I'm a new teacher. I can't control my class. Like they're talking when they're supposed to be working. They're doing this, they're doing that. And um, it's a really interesting time of year to think about exactly what you were saying. Like you can do things to influence your class and push them in the right direction but the only person you really can control is yourself. And so where the anxiety comes from, if I correlate this correctly to what you're saying, is like that teacher anxiety comes from the fact that you can't control 30 kids and all of their actions. Yeah, and, and you're thinking that you should control it, and that's what you're focusing on. So if I'm focusing on, um, like, okay, let's say uh, young Dan Jones me is like sitting in the back of your classroom and I'm annoying. <laughs> I'm taught, you know, I'm passing notes and I can say that this because I was that kid at one point. Yes. So I'm sorry to all the teachers out there for those bad students. That was me, <laughs> but only a couple years. Then my parents kind of sorted me out. But, um, anyways, the point is if you're sitting there focusing on me and trying to control me, your anxiety is going to go up because as I respond in a negative way, if you say, Hey, put you know, put your phone down. And I'm like, no, I'm not putting my phone down. If you're totally focused on me and the outcome, you can't control that. But what you can control is the words you say to influence me, the actions you take, and the attitude. You know, so maybe it's like, okay, the act, like to use an example of what you can control, you stand up a little bit taller. So, you, you know, you present yourself as bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And which is more like, in a, you know, you can take like literally an authoritative posture where you stand with like more authority. Secondly, you can change your tone of voice. Dan, put that phone down. It's like, oh, she means business. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so and you it can, could can, be like you get yeah. softer. Like for me, it was always the whispering where I would get real close and be like, Dan, put the phone down. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a better approach, right? No, both work. It depends on the kid. But for me, because I'm kind of like boisterous and loud, when I got quiet, my kids were like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. What is it they say? If you want people to listen, shout. If you want people to really listen, whisper. Yes. <laughs> well, I, that's, that's really, really interesting. So, you know, we, when we were talking before, we were talking about the athlete having – an um, actual crowd and like audience, not audience, but um, uh-huh. crowd. like they're shouting things and you definitely cannot control them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's the situation as well with athletes that we, you know, talk about. It's like, okay, there's all these people watching you, but can you control the crowd? No. And if you're focused on their reactions, what they're doing, what they're saying, then it's taking you away from what your performance and what you need to focus on. And it can be really easy to get caught up in, thing, in focusing on things you don't have control of, right? Like what parents think of you, even what your principal thinks of you. You can influence it, but you can't control it. And so that's where you need to separate basically 
your performance from your identity. So most people, um, they actually think like who, you know, what they do, like I'm a teacher, um, is who they are. Like that's really closely, they associate outcomes with their identity, basically is what I'm trying to say. And so if you do not feel like you're succeeding as a teacher, all of a sudden when teaching that outcome of teaching is attached to your identity, all of a sudden you feel like you're a bad person. Yeah. And so then when you're teaching, if you have an off like performance, it's really detrimental to you and it hurts you a lot more because that's who you are, right? That performance, you're saying that's my identity. But the reality is that's not your identity. Your performance is your performance. And who you are is your character, your work ethic, you know, your actions and your attitude, right, over time. And it's, you know, it's interesting. I was, there was one golfer I was working with, and I remember asking him, uh, who's the greatest golfer of all time? And he said, you know, I would have to say Tiger Woods before, before his big scandal. I was like, okay. And, you know, what's some of his best performances? And so he walked me through them. And then I asked him, I said, okay, and let me ask you this. You judged Tiger Woods when I asked you who the best golfer ever was. You talked about Tiger Woods. Why? Because of his best days, not his worst days, right? He's like, yeah. I'm like, so when I ask you about your, who you are and your performance, you're judging yourself by your worst days, not your best ones. Yeah. I'm like, so why, why are you treating Tiger Woods better than yourself? It's, that's back to what I was saying in the intro about I'm not a bad mom because I had this bad morning. And my kids aren't bad kids because they were moving slow and kind of have an attitude, right? Like, mm-hmm. that was one of, I mean, I have good kids. And that was like, they just had a bad morning and I had a bad morning at the same time. So, like, just even to that, like, yes, I'm a mom, but that's not my whole identity. Like, it's part of who I am, but who I am is what you were saying, like, my attitudes, my work ethic, and all those things you mentioned as a mother are what my kids notice day in and day out. And I also think that goes to teaching and that that's what kids notice about their teachers day in and day out. They're not going to remember, like, one lesson that went bad or didn't like didn't work, they're looking at those things that you mentioned that actually make up that teacher's identity. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Like if I even think back, you know, to some of the teachers that I had, I don't, you know, Mrs. Gifford, third grade, I don't remember a single like lesson per se, but I remember she was nice. She really cared about me learning and I enjoyed her class. Yeah. Or if I think about, you know, a high school teacher, I had Mr. Denton, um, and Mr. Denton was my math teacher. I didn't really love math, but I loved Mr. Denton's class. Why? Because I was like, he brings tons of energy, you know, he's very focused, and I feel like it's an environment where I just want to be. And so at the end of the day, yeah, you can have an off lesson or, or things like that, but your students, most of them, you know, if they're somewhat reasonable, which, you know, let's be honest, your brain isn't fully developed till you're about 21, so they can't fully be. So um, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And they're going to judge you by your good days just as much as, you know, and most people, they're going to forget a lot of the bad performances if you have really good ones. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what you need to focus on is the things you can control. Because that's how you keep getting better as a teacher. It's like, oh, this action worked really well. Let me keep doing that. Let me keep doing that. And, but if you're focused only on your identity, it can become really discouraging really fast because any bad performance you have, you're going to start thinking you're a bad teacher. And then when you start thinking you're a bad teacher, you're not going to want to teach. When you don't want to teach, then you're not even going to want to show up to your job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think? Um, and I think in teaching, when we, you know, like if you think about athletes, most athletes, I'm assuming, are athletes because they love the sport they play. And Mm -hmm. I think with teachers, it is hard to separate that from your identity because teachers, it comes from your heart. It comes from a good place. You're not there to make a ton of money and climb, climb, like climb the corporate ladder. Right. Like, so you go into teaching because it's, you're helping the world and you're helping children. And so it does become a big part of your identity. 
But so is what you're kind of saying that like, yes, acknowledge that you're in that career, you know, to do those good things, but this is really about you having multiple kind of performances throughout the day and separating that almost those heartstrings from the actual act of teaching. Yes. And and let let me kind of go a little bit into that Um, because, you know, like you said, teachers go into teaching. Why? Because they love it. It's not, it's not a job you do for the money. It's a job you do because you're passionate about helping people and changing lives. And so when that's like your objective, you know, is to change lives and things like that, which is a very ambitious goal, it can be so easy to separate, you know, to connect your identity to that. But at the end of the day, you've got to treat every single day that you have with your students as a performance. And even, you know, to go deeper into controlling what you can control, let's say you have one hour and students are rowdy, they get really mad, you know, you you get a little frustrated and you're not feeling so good about your performance. Well, the moment that hour ends, can you control what just happened? No, it's done, (laughs) right? Yeah. All you can control is the next hour mm-hmm. of teaching. And so when you start to really control what you can control, it's so much easier to dial in your performance because then you're taking each section, each minute, each hour just for what it is and for what you can control instead of you know, let it, getting frustrated from the previous hour and letting that frustrate you the next hour. Absolutely. Is that, is that, does that make sense, kind of what I'm explaining? Totally. Hopefully. And, and I think, like, even when you're in that hour of a hard hour, let's say, you know, you came back from lunch, your kids are rowdy, the copy machine was broke, so you don't have the materials you need, um, and, you know, you just got a nasty email from a parent. So, like, you're facing these kids, and it's kind of like all these things are stacked up against you. I think even what from what you're saying is maybe you do have those three or four kids that are just not there and they're talking and they're being distracting. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, I can control um, like the kids who are present. That's something I can control is to push forward with the learning with those kids that do want to come along with the ride. And I use that a lot in my classroom. I mean, I taught in some pretty tough neighborhoods where kids would come in with a lot on their back and not be present and want to learn and sometimes want to distract. And I would focus my energy on the kids that were there ready to learn. And a lot of times it Mm -hmm. kind of brought the other children along that energy. Yeah. And, and I think I, I mean, that's kind of a separate thing. I'm not, I've never taught in a classroom with kids, so I can't really speak to that. But I do think, you know, when you are reinforcing the students that are doing well, and these other students say, hey, they're getting all this attention because usually people act out. Why? Because they want attention, yep. right? That's part of it. And so as these other kids are, you know, they see, oh, hey, if I want attention in this classroom, I've got to behave. i got to perform. i got to show up. Yep. That's what you want to reinforce. And it's a lot easier to create a great culture when you're reinforcing good students instead of always reinforcing the negative ones. Yeah. And, ba- and a, a quick shout out to anyone who's, a new teacher maybe and struggling with this, I will say on a side note with that, if you kind of take that route where you just kind of ignore that behavior and you're really focusing on the kids that are present, the second you see one of those kids, kind of one of those, you know, distracted kids start to come on board, you have to recognize it right away. Because I agree with you, they're, they're seeking your attention. So if you can then, the second you they start to correct their behavior, go up to them and say, oh, I'm so glad you started working on this, or I'm so glad you're reading that story with us. Like, acknowledge it right away and give them that positive attention. Um, So just a little tip for my 10 years in the classroom there. Dan, let's talk about energy vampires. (laughs) I love this term, by the way. Um, So explain what you mean by energy vampires. So there's certain, you know, in in this context, in business, you know, in sports, energy vampires could be like negative fans, right? They could be people in your life that are taking a lot of energy, and anytime you interact with them, they're like sucking energy from you. Like I think about like different parents telling you, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, and this with my kid. 
Well, you know, some parents do know their kids really well. Well, some don't, right? It could be the case that you as the teacher, depending on what grade you're teaching, you're spending more time with that student than their parents are on a day-to-day basis. Yes. Like that's, it's just the reality, you know? Um, So you actually need to make sure that you're treating yourself as the authority in that situation. And energy vampires, you know, a lot of times what happens is you'll spend 80% of your time, you know, we just talked about the classroom, right? So you you could spend 80% of your time teaching trying to help those four students that are whispering in the back the whole time. Or you could give your time to the 26 other students that are sitting there and ready to learn. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes with energy vampires, there's certain people, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to change them. And you just have to accept that, right? (laughs) Certain students, there are certain things they've dealt with at their home, you know, in their lives, and they've been conditioned certain ways that it maybe the time you get them, you can't change that, right? And at the end of the day, you can't control that. But what you can control is, am I giving energy to the people that are receiving it? Because when you give time to an energy vampire, like, I'm sure, let me ask you this, Gary. Is it draining when you're sitting there with a, you know, these four whispering students and it's the 10th day in a row that you keep asking them to be quiet and you've spent half your classroom time trying to help, you know, get those four students to be quiet? Does that kind of wear you out? Absolutely. Yes. And it puts you in a so, place of like total irritation too. Yeah, because you don't feel any success, right? You're like I keep doing this and nothing's working. Yeah. Right. Versus, let's say you know for the most part you're like you know those four energy vampires in the back. I'm not going to give them eighty or ninety percent of my time. I'm going to give my time to the students that are here to learn and ready to learn. Now these students are learning, and then you're starting to see success and experience success, and then, you know, how, how did you feel when you were working with those students? You know what I mean? When you were working with the students that were doing one, when you focused your attention on that, was it energizing because you saw their progress? Yes, 100%. So, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, at the core, that's, you know, the energy vampire principle. Like, don't give all your time and energy, energy to energy vampires because the more you work with them, the more, <laughs> it's like the life they suck out of you. You know, it's just like a vampire. <laughs> and, I mean, this goes to fellow teachers in your building. You know, there are energy vampire teachers in your building on your staff. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, paying close attention to like your interactions with fellow teachers and what teachers uplift you and, and, you know, bring energy into your classroom and into your life and which ones are energy vampires. And then that goes to parents. Like, I am, um, I'm Dan, I'm working on a course right now for teachers talking about parent relationships and um, one of the, yes. And, and this is a concept I talk about a lot and it's that I was a very dedicated and skilled teacher and I, my kids did very well. And I'm not saying that to be egotistical. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. Like I had a classroom that kids wanted to be in. They succeeded on their test scores. Like I ran a great classroom. There were parents, and, I, and like when the teacher list would come out, the parents wanted their kids to have me, which is like a huge compliment, right? But mm-hmm. no matter how hard I tried, there were still two or three parents that did not <laughs> like me. And when yeah. I was a young teacher, those parents ate me alive. It, they didn't know it, but like I would fester at night because of an email they would send or a comment they would make. And I made a big switch, you know, my fifth or sixth year into teaching where I started to say, no, why am I letting those people control my emotions? You know, why wasn't I focusing on the other, you know, 50 parents that love me? Mm -hmm. So I think it applies to your classroom, fellow teachers, parents, life. Yeah, well, and especially parents probably because most students aren't going to, give you too much negative, um, I mean, they, you know, they'll be negative in the classroom, but it's just different when an adult insults you than when a child does. And, and, and for sports, you know, to compare it to sports, it's what if Michael Jordan or like LeBron James, you know, since he's playing now, changed 
how he played based on what fans were shouting from the sidelines. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. How good would he be performing? Not very good at all, you know, and there's different other athletes I've worked with. If you start listening to what people shout from the sidelines, you're not going to get very far, right? They don't know your sport. They haven't put in the time. They haven't put in the hours. They haven't put in the training. They don't know the concepts. They don't know the material. And in fact, you know, to go to that point I mentioned earlier, they might not even know their kid as well as you do. Yeah. Because the reality is any parent going into a teaching situation, they're biased, super biased, super. right? And as we know, the more biased you are, the harder it is to see anything accurately, right? Yeah. And so when you go into that situation, when a parent steps into a situation with their children, super biased, super emotional, and not having the teaching skills that you have, they are the equivalent, in my opinion, of someone shouting from the sideline. Yes. Now, the case where, uh, you know, someone shouting from the sideline could be helpful is the case where they say, you know, they actually have relevant information, you know, to that situation. For instance, a basketball player could be playing and he doesn't realize there's 20 seconds left on the clock, right? And they could shout that. And what I want to correlate that to is there might be something going on at home that is going to affect the student that you don't know about. Right. And that's where the, you know, the shouters from the sideline could be helpful where the, hey, actually, um, he, you know, he or she has been bullied lately in recess. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. That's useful information. Right. But kind of what you have to sift through is like, what is useful, relevant information versus, you know, what, what are, what are these parents kind of shouting from the sideline? Yeah. Is like super biased, super emotional fans. Right. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> and like a reality TV show where LeBron James actually does like what the fans tell him to do. How hilarious! Would that yeah. Be? And you're making such a great point. It's like you have to have a filter of what is relevant and valid. And like, I, I mean, I talk about this a lot too. It's like, how are you emotionally reacting to some of this feedback or whatever they're saying to you? Um, mm-hmm. You know. And like, I had a student teacher once and she, we were studying the regions of the United States and we were studying the Northeast. So she sent home this map for the kids to label. And over to the West, I don't know, like somehow Nebraska was like left off this map, but it was like, we weren't even focused. It was like, it was, we'd blown up the map and Nebraska wasn't there. And I had this dad who was like a professor, a library, like head of the libraries at a major university. And he wrote us this scathing email about Nebraska missing off this app. And my student teacher was in tears. And I was like, listen, this person just wants to get on their high horse and tell us something we did wrong. That's all this Mm -hmm. is about. Like, we're not studying the, you know, the Plains regions. It doesn't matter. Nebraska is not there. He just wanted an opportunity to dig and make you feel bad. And that's all this is, you know? And so taking the emotion out of that, realizing, again, the performance versus the identity. Yeah, it's, it's and, it, you know, to go to that example, what I really like about that is um, <laughs> the professor that emailed you guys, you know, this scathing email, or I'm assuming. Yes. He doesn't have all the context. Does he know that you guys wrote that map after an eight-hour day with children? Do you realize how like draining that is and how, how energized and how clear, you know, are you going to think after eight, when you're overworked as a teacher, you know, that's usually the reality. How easy is it to think after a day like that? So you have to give context to even your mistakes where it's like, yeah, you know what? I didn't do as well today, yeah. but I had the flu and I still showed up to work. Yep. I had a fever and I still came. I'm, you know, I've been low on sleep because I've been grading these tests you know, I've seen my mom, you know, like grading tests at night, and my dad and things like that. And it's like, I'm, you know, I'm tired because I was doing this. And you know what? I still showed up and I gave 100% effort. But to expect every day to be a perfect performance when you don't give context to those performances, that's just not rational, you know? Yeah. But we all do it and, because yeah. we're trained to do it, you know, as part of the American culture. It's like, oh, 
well, we expect perfection and, you know, we're very hyper-focused on outcomes. And you've got to give context to your performances. It's like, you know what? Yeah, LeBron James lost in the finals, but he lost to a team that had four all-stars. Yeah. Okay. It's different. You know, that context really matters. That's so true. And, you know, even with that dad, it's like he probably came home from a long day at work. He was in his own headspace, was looking at it and decided, you know, he needed to tell us that we didn't know that Nebraska existed, you know, like so condescending. Mm -hmm. But the problem is it is really easy, like you said, after a whole day with students to take that like in a super personal way and start going on this path like, oh, I'm stupid. I'm dumb. Like I'm supposed to know all these by the way, elementary school teachers are supposed to know everything about everything that ever existed in every subject area. <laughs> but like, it's easy to go down to that place and start beating yourself up. And, um, and that is really hard. And I've been there many times in the classroom. But like you said, there was context around it. And what that dad really should have done was say to his daughter, hey, did you notice there's something missing on that map? Can you figure it out? And then she would figure out it was Nebraska. And then the daughter come the next day to school and say, hey, did you know Nebraska is missing from this map? And then we all would have laughed and talked about it, right? Like, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, I was tired. Yeah, who cares? Like a kid telling a teacher that is one thing. A 45-year-old man writing an email is, well, we could go down a whole other path there, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we, we, we won't go down that path, you know, the, the verbal warriors of the world. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about where this is a great transition into focusing on what's going well. So how can we shift into that? And how do you do that with, you know, in business consulting with athletes? And how would you suggest doing that with the teaching profession? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and let me just like step back really quick, because it's why, why do we talk about what's going well? Because most people, they're sitting there saying, oh, you've got to learn from your mistakes. You've got to learn from your mistakes, which is true. Like, you don't want to re- repeat your mistakes, but the reason you got hired as a teacher at that school you're at is for what you do well, not for what you suck at. Yeah. And so one of the biggest things for you to continue to improve as a teacher is to focus on things that you're doing well. Because that's why you're hired there, is to do things well and what you're doing well. And um, on top of that, like psychologically what happens is you start to focus on what's working. It builds your confidence up. Your motivation goes up because you're like, hey, I'm crushing it as a teacher. (laughs) Like you want to show teachers that get results love showing up to teach. Yep. And the reality is it can be most of us are preconditioned to focus on what didn't go well. Oh, it's so true. It's so embedded in us from such a young, young age. Yes. And even like there might be some biology to it. I was reading a science article a little bit ago, and it talked about how, you know, the human brain is more attuned to negative attention because, you know, let's say I'm walking in Africa 2,000 years ago. I've got to be really aware of anything that could kill me, <laughs> like a lion in the field, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, or in the, you know, in the grass. And so my point is, most of us, we will naturally gravitate more towards negative things. And so to cancel out the negative so that you can actually see things clearly, because when you only see the negative, you're not seeing the positive. And the positive exists in almost any situation. Yep. And so what you need to do is start figuring out, okay, what's working and what am I doing well? You know, even to step back, can we talk about your day today? Is it okay if we dive into that a little bit? So today was the first day of school, right? And so you're like, hey, I didn't, you're like, I I was off this morning, all these other things. I'm sitting there when you're telling the story, I'm like, if you were having a bad day, you know, a, a little bit, you know, you're a little bit behind. And you still went and worked out. Yes. Like you still went to Orange Theory. You still took your kids to school. They're alive. They made it to school safe. They have clothes on. And they ate. They have clothes on. They ate breakfast. You know, (laughs) they ate breakfast. Um, It's like there was one um, uh, business executive I was working with. And somehow it came up, you know, she's a mom. And she was talking about, you know, I just don't. I was like, what's the first thing you did well today? She's like, I haven't done anything well today. 
He's like, nothing? I'm like, it's 5 p.m. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the one thing, right? And so I'm like, what's the first thing you did well today? And she's like, well, um, I don't know. I, I can't come up with anything. So I'm like, all right, what's the first thing you did today? She's like, well, I got up. I was like, what time? 6 a.m. Okay. And what were you doing at 6 a.m.? I was doing my kids' laundry. It's like, so you sacrificed your sleep to help your kids have clean clothes so they could go to school. Yeah. It's like, how is that not a good thing? Yeah. She's like, I guess that is a good thing. I was like, what's the next thing you did? I was like, you made your, I made my kids breakfast. I'm like, what? Man, your kids are spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're doing their laundry and making them breakfast? So, you know, she, I was like, okay, making them breakfast. Like, you're taking your time to help your kids enjoy their morning and start their day off right. You're, sacri- you're being selfless. How is being selfless a bad thing? Oh, I guess that's two good things I did today. I was like, yeah, the first, you know, we went through a day. It was like the first five things she did that day were for other people. Yeah. And I asked her at 5 p.m. what went well, and she couldn't name a thing. Jeez. <laughs> so, I mean, athletes do it in sports. Um, moms do it with their kids. Dads do it with their kids. Um, teachers do it with their students. You've got to be constantly finding those wins. You know, it's like, uh, Carrie, you and I, in our last conversation, we talked about, you know, football, what do you do? You go 10 yards. You're trying to go 10 yards. And what happens when a football player gets 10 yards? They clap, they dance, they celebrate. Yeah. It's a small win. <laughs> it's not a touchdown. Yeah. But you see football players, they literally celebrate their first downs. They celebrate going That's so amazing. 10 yards, yeah. 30 feet. Yep. I just went th- we just went 30 feet on a football field. We didn't score a point, but what are we doing? We're celebrating. Yep. So they celebrate for a minute, and then what do they do? They get back and go to work. But the point is they take a set, you know, they are taking time to celebrate it. And they are, why not? Like you just advanced. And I think that's what needs to happen more in the classroom for teachers with themselves. With themselves. Because we're always celebrating the kids and everything else, but with themselves. I think that's so powerful. Yeah. They need to celebrate with themselves because who's the one that drove the ball 10 yards down the field? The teacher. Yeah. You organize the classroom. You got everyone, you know, you're the one that, like, is presenting information in a way that they're listening. You're getting them, you know, you're helping kids that have very small attention spans to learn. And usually 30 people, 30 of them at a time. Yeah. Which is not an easy feat. I was just going to say, it's like you have 30 kids on that team that you're trying to drive the football (laughs) down. And I mean, I think... When you become more of a veteran teacher, there are things that come really easy to you and like natural to you, like maybe, you know, doing a guided reading group. And that seems very easy, but a new teacher might walk in and be like, oh, wow. And so I think as you get going and you get better and better, it's like even celebrating those little things that you do really well. And don't forget that there are people out there that are beginners that would die to have their classroom run like yours does. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's part of the point, you know, is that like, is professional athletes, they can take it for granted that they made, you know, I'm going to use another basketball example because I love basketball, even though I'm five, eight <laughs> and um, five, nine, actually to my point, it's, it's that the more experienced you get, the more, the easier it becomes to take your performances for granted. So, if you think about professional football players, how many first downs have they achieved? Thousands. But they're still celebrating them. Yeah. And, you know, you think about that mom, you know, the business executive and mom I mentioned earlier. She was not celebrating the fact that she got up early, she did her kids' laundry, made them a meal, and sacrificed her time and her sleep to do it. She took it for granted. She's like, oh, that's normal. I was like, is it? <laughs> I was like, I don't think it is. And even if it is normal, it still is extraordinary that you're doing it because you don't have to. Well, 
it's interesting too. I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately about how there are certain roles that we play that can be really isolating. Uh, mm-hmm. Motherhood can be if you don't have a good support network, but um, teaching can be a very isolating profession. Um, being a podcaster and a business owner, solopreneur like I am can be very isolating, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And <laughs> a teacher has children constantly giving them feedback, right? But they're not really <laughs> interacting with other adults. There's not adults coming in and saying, oh, you know what, uh, Jill, that lesson you did on um, at, on verbs was just incredible. So like it can be yeah. cool. you don't get that feedback and you don't get that team peer feedback a lot. Um, and I feel that even as like, a podcaster. Like I know people are listening to this podcast. I see the stats. I see the reviews here and there on, you know, on um, iTunes, but I rarely hear from anyone. So when I do get an email or meet someone in person and say, hey, your your podcast influenced me, like it's like the touchdown, right? Yeah, that's a touchdown. That's the touchdown. And it is hard to like celebrate the 10 yards in my role now helping teachers. And I think for teachers, it's hard because we, they don't hear from other adults. Yeah. And and so that's where it's like, you really need to be celebrating those first downs because you're driving them. And you know, a way to celebrate it is like, you know, maybe at the end of hour, every hour, you take a second, you write down, Hey, what were the wins from the last hour? Yeah. Like, you know, micro wins or even like 10 yard, you know, what are the first downs from the last hour? I did this. I drove this across the line, even though, you know, Tim in the back was really annoying. (laughs) I still, I still went, I focused on the students, you know, that were engaged and I got them to a certain level. Right. So that's, you know, really what you want to do. And you want to do it throughout the day, because if you do that, imagine if you do that five hours a day, you're like, Hey, Wow, at the end of the day, you have this list of wins, first downs that you've gotten. You're like, wow, I actually made progress today. Yes. Instead of letting the day just kind of happen to you, you're being very mm-hmm. mindful of, you know, the things that you're doing that are going well. I love that. Love that. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, you know, it's like, who's in charge of tracking your wins? You. <laughs> right? It's your job to be your own biggest fan. Yeah. Especially as a teacher. <laughs> yeah. Because like you said, you're alone. You know, you've got these like 30 little muggles yapping at you. Sorry, I shouldn't use the term muggles. <laughs> Students. Um, same thing. <laughs> you know, they're yapping at you, yada, yada, yada. So there's all these things going on and you've got to be sitting there celebrating. Hey, I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. Cool. All right. Now what am I going to do tomorrow? Then it's motivating. It's exciting you know, teaching becomes fun again. Because you wanted to teach to help people and to change lives. But the reality is, one day, you know, isn't going to totally change a student's life forever, typically. No. And to expect that level of performance from yourself, I'm sorry, just not, it's not realistic. And you can't control it, right? It'll happen when it happens. And this kind of goes into the farming thing. So we were talking about this, and I love this this kind of theory of diminishing returns that we in, in, in increasing returns. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So one thing that uh, we talked about last time on our call was that, you know, most people understand the law of diminishing returns, right? Like I'll give you an example. I bought Ben and Jerry's um, tonight dough. Phenomenal. Jimmy Fallon's on the side. It's just Ooh. delicious. And the first bite, unreal. Second bite, unreal. By the 20th bite, it's kind of, I'm not getting that same satisfaction, you know, diminishing returns. And most of us get that, you know, over time you get diminishing returns. But one thing that's interesting, I got this concept from a guy I go to church with, Henry Eyring, um, and he talked about the law of increasing returns. You know, and he said this, and I thought it was really profound. With parenting, it's a law of increasing returns, which is you work so hard to get your kids to talk, to walk, to go to school, to learn. You're doing all these things. And especially when they're teenagers, it's probably not the most fun. (laughs) You know, if we're just being honest, we remember how we were as teenagers. 
you know, it's probably not the most fun. But then your kid graduates from high school. Then he goes to college. Then your child graduates from college. Then they get their first job. They start their family. And you get all the returns increase bigger and bigger and bigger over time. You know, and for teachers, it's kind of similar to farming in that instant. You know, in, in that, in that, in farming, like I grew up next to a farm and, you know, there's a farmer and I'm, you know, as a young kid, you're watching this guy and he's like plowing this field, puts all these seeds in, watering day after day after day after day. I'm like, what is this guy doing? Nothing's <laughs> growing. You know, as a kid, you're like, what? what's going on here? Like, why is he putting in all this work and nothing is really happening? You know, and then after a few weeks, sprouts pop up, right? You know, and then after a month, oh, it's a foot tall, right? And after three months, it's like, oh, this corn is actually four or five feet tall, right? It grows faster and faster over time. But you put in so much work just to get it to grow, just to come out of the ground. Yeah. And with teaching, it's the law of increasing returns. You know, you're going to put so much time into these students, and then, you know, five years later, you see them graduate from high school or 10 years later. You know, especially with social media, it's probably the nicest time to get those increasing returns with students because yeah. you can follow their lives. Like, oh, hey, this student did this, this student did this, this student did this. And you'll get those returns over time. And you'll know, hey, I'm the one that helped plant that seed in the ground and helped it grow to this level. Yes. And it's funny, you may not even realize it at the time. Going back to how we were talking about angry parents, I had this one student. Mm -hmm. He just graduated uh, high school and he's headed off to college. And uh, his mom friended me on Facebook. The whole time I was teaching him, the, the parents were going through a really nasty divorce. And the mom, I thought the mom, like, absolutely hated me. Like, I did not think this woman liked me. And so I ran into her, mm -hmm. like, six months ago. And she was introducing me to everyone as this student's favorite teacher and how much impact I had on his life. And, and Oh, my gosh, I, that's amazing. And, like, and looking back, going back to what we were talking about, like, at that time, she was going through some really hard stuff. And hard stuff with her kids and hard stuff with her divorce. And I was a constant. And, like, she was taking things out on me because she just, I don't know why. But, like, way now, I mean, how many years later is that? Jeez, 10 years later? And she's saying that I, had, I was such a big influence on, on him. So, I mean, I think just remembering that as a teacher, like, the days are long the weeks are long sometimes, but at the end of the day, the next thing you know, in 10 years, you're going to be having these little adults coming to you saying, man, you really had influence. Exactly. On exactly. And you can't, you know, I think it's just good to set those expectations correctly. Like the best returns you're going to get as a teacher will be after they leave your classroom. Not on the next test or not on the next project or, you know, testing such a big part of teachers' lives. And I mean, it just dawned on me, no wonder we have teachers with such anxiety around testing because they can't control how those kids do on that test, no matter how yeah. much they prepare them. Yeah, you could prepare the kid as much as you want, as hard as you want, as well as you can, right? And then let's say the kid stays up till 2 a.m. playing video games. Well, <laughs> you couldn't control that. And now he's showing up to take a test, super exhausted, and you're sitting there thinking, I don't know what I did wrong. Well, you didn't do anything wrong. Yep. So, yeah, and, and it can be frustrating, but that's where it goes back to, like, you evaluate yourself based on your performance, right? Did I do everything I could? Yes. Was I explaining everything in the best way I knew how? Yes. You know, did I do everything to make it engaging, you know, and maybe you might need to be a little bit entertaining with, you know, kids today so that they would actually listen? Yeah, I did everything I could. Their test scores didn't show up. Okay, well, what was working? You know, then you start dialing. Okay, what, what were the, like the skills I was doing that really worked? Hey, I noticed this was working really well. Let's do more of that. You know, when I use this example, they really got it. And so that way you can still get wins and momentum and everything else you need for the next student, for the next day, for the next year. And it goes, I mean, this just ties everything we've talked about together. Um, 
I think like going back to what you're saying, controlling the controllable that, you know, knowing that you have to separate your performance from your identity. Um, I think being positive about the things that go well, really focusing on what's going well and avoiding those energy vampires. I mean, I think those are three really great ways for teachers to stay mentally strong and mentally um, healthy. So thank you for sharing out all this knowledge. I mean, Dan, I could talk to you for days, <laughs> um, but I really appreciate just, I love having someone come in from a different field because I always think we can tie it back to teaching and learning. I know your time is really precious. So thank you for taking time with all of my listeners. Today. Absolutely. Happy to do it, Carrie. Well, that's a wrap with Dan Jones. If you're still listening, thanks for hanging in there. I know this episode is a little longer than my typical episode, but I thought Dan had so much to offer for all of us to recenter ourselves and remember that there are only certain things we can control in our lives and in our classroom. I also loved Dan's message about focusing on the positive and pushing those energy vampires out of our lives. We have some exciting guests coming your way, including Paul Rodine from Rodine Literary Management. Paul represents some of the best children's authors out there. He's gonna talk about what it takes to publish a children's book. I'm gonna hop on a few episodes. I'm gonna talk about parent-teacher relationships, and I'm also going to do an episode around those of you who are thinking about making a step into working in ed tech or working for an education company. I'm going to give you some insights on if you're ready to make that step. But until then, my friends, thank you for being here today and keep on teaching on.